0: So those are, uh, are a couple announcements for this morning. If you have those Bibles, uh, or any Bible that you've brought with you, go ahead and make your way to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, that's going to start on page 976. We live, you and I live, in a, in a divided world. That's true racially. Uh, That's true politically, that's true economically, the different economic states that we live in, the classes that we're part of. And erected around us, really erected by us, are what the Apostle Paul would refer to as dividing walls of hostility. And hostility is really the right word for that, because so many of these conversations about these topics really aren't conversations at all. They're more like shouting matches, They're characterized by outrage. They're characterized by offense. Or, on the other side of things, where people grow weary of the hostility, there's an attempt to do an end around, to avoid anything that's potentially offensive or potentially hurtful. It's essentially an attempt to try to make these walls of hostility go away by either pretending that they don't exist or forbidding anyone from talking about them. There's a, a really fascinating article that uh, appeared in The Atlantic uh, last month, and it was called The Coddling of the American Mind. I would recommend it to you. It's, it's worth the time to, to read it. Um, and in it, these two authors, Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt, they say, they say this, A movement is arising, undirected and driven largely by students, to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. And they highlight these two terms, microaggressions and trigger warnings. Both of those things are are legitimate psychological terms. They're legitimate things that exist, but what they make the case for in this article is that they're being increasingly applied to more and more words and phrases and ideas. And they, they go on to explain it this way. For example, by some campus guidelines, it's a microaggression to ask an Asian American or Latino American, where were you born? because this implies that he or she is not a real American. Trigger warnings are alerts that professors are expected to issue if something in a course might cause a strong emotional response. For example, some students have called for warnings that F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby portrays misogyny and physical abuse so that students who have been previously victimized by domestic violence can choose to avoid this work, which they believe might trigger a recurrence of past trauma. And they continue on to explain just how escalated this becomes. They say this. It's generally considered unacceptable to question the reasonableness, let alone the sincerity, of someone's emotional state, particularly if those emotions are linked to one's group identity. The thin argument, I'm offended, becomes an unbeatable trump card. And this leads to what one of the editors of The Atlantic calls the offendedness sweepstakes, in which opposing parties use claims of offense offense as cudgels, which is a a word that means weapons. I had to look that up. (laughs) In the process, the bar for what we consider unacceptable speech is lowered further and further. So in other words, here's what they're, they're highlighting in this article. There's a movement that's existing and growing, and it's characterized largely by avoidance. Avoid hearing or experiencing anything that might be hurtful or offensive to you. Avoid saying or doing anything that might potentially be offensive or hurtful to anyone else. And if we can somehow get rid of all of the offense or avoid experiencing offense, then all will be well with the world. So you've got overt hostility and you've got avoidance. But you know what those two approaches have in common? Neither of them is sufficient to bring peace. Neither of them is sufficient to bring peace. Hostility and outrage, these shouting matches that exist in our culture, that's not going to bring peace. Nor do attempts to do an end around and try to just pretend that that the offense won't exist. Now, if neither of those is the answer, then then what is? Although the specifics of of our world today are are, are much different than they were 2,000 years ago when Paul writes this letter, people are still people. And as Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, he identifies the biggest dividing wall that existed in that culture. And he also identifies the only remedy sufficient enough to actually deal with that. So as we continue in this, as we read through Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, listen for that, look for that, the remedy to these dividing walls of hostility. You can follow along with me as I read. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh So then, you are are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we we come to this text as a divided people in our culture, and we immediately start to to see that that even though the specifics of this division are different, the the same thing exists in our day, and we need you desperately to be our peace. So we pray that you would, through your word this morning, that you just would work in our hearts, uh, that Jesus, you would show yourself to us as our peace as the source of our peace. And may we look to you as, uh, as our peace, both in our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. So guide us in that. Lead us as we learn from your word this morning. We pray that in your name. Amen. So this picks up right where Paul left off uh, in the first half of Ephesians 2 last week. Now he's again making this contrast between who we were left to ourselves and then who we are as we are called in Christ. And the image that we saw from last week's text is this one of pervasive death. You know, we were in bondage to sin, we were dead, we were under condemnation. This week's image is one of alienation, separation, or or hostility. We're actually cut off, Paul says, from the promises of God, and we're at enmity with God and with, with one another. Now, if the remedy to the pervasive death is God's grace, like we saw last week, then what's the remedy to alienation and hostility? Well, if we were were paying attention in Paul's salutation when he opens this letter, he actually alludes to it before he he explains it. Where, Where we were dead, God meets us with grace. And where we are alienated and hostile, God meets us with peace. And so when Paul begins this letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's alluding to the remedy for this, alienation and this separation from God. Now this peace operates on two axes, and we'll spend really the rest of our time this morning talking about those two axes. So there's the the vertical axis of peace, peace with God, and there's the horizontal axis of peace, peace with with one another. So first, let's talk about the vertical axis. Let's talk about peace with God. Paul is writing to a Gentile or non-Jewish audience in this letter. But Paul himself, and many of you know this about Paul if you've if you studied his life, uh, studied all the different scriptures written by him. Paul is a Jewish man. Uh, he was a zealous follower of the Old Testament law given by God through Moses. And he was so zealous for that way of life that when this small sect of people claiming to have found the Messiah in Jesus, when they start emerging on the scene, Paul lends his whole life. He lends his whole life to persecution and the imprisonment, and the murder of those people. But then Jesus meets him on this road to Damascus, brings about radical change and transformation in Paul's life. And Paul not only then repents and believes in Jesus himself, he also is commissioned to be the messenger of that good news of Jesus to the Gentile people of the first century Mediterranean world. So Paul has this great ability to interact both with Jewish people and Gentile people, and he talks about both in this passage. The Gentiles he calls those who were far off, and the Jews he calls those who were near. What does he mean when he says that the the Gentiles are far off, but the Jews are near? Well, the Gentiles are far off in, in a lot of different respects. He rattles off five really quickly, all in verse 12. He says that they're separated from Christ, they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, in other words, they're not among God's chosen people. They're not part of that group. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. So they're not on the receiving end of God's covenantal promises. Promises like, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will never leave you or forsake you. They're not on the receiving end of those promises. They're without hope. So there's no hope of changing their situation, of, of coming out of that condition by themselves. And they're without God in the world. It's not that they're without religion or a variety of deities to choose from. The the Roman and Greek influences uh, in Ephesus gave them a, a wide array of deities to pick, to follow. So it's not that they're without religion or lowercase g gods, but they're without the one true God. The Jews, on the other hand, are near. And what Paul is saying when he says that is that God chose Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. And when God did that, Abraham's family, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they became, they they were given this special privilege and place as God's people. So unlike the Gentiles, they are God's people. Um, They weren't strangers to his covenantal promises. They were those who were the recipients of God's covenantal promises. And they weren't without God. They very much had access to the one true God. So they are near to God in those ways. But the playing field gets leveled so quickly. Because it's not just those who are far off who need peace with God, we learn. It's also those who are near. And Paul has this really intimate personal knowledge of this as a Jewish man, as this zealous Pharisee that he was. If anyone was near enough, it's Paul. He's the nearest of the near. And yet, something had gone terribly wrong for Paul and for all of the other Israelite people. They had... They had presumed upon that position of privilege. They had presumed upon that place that they had as God's people, and they'd become so callous to God that they'd missed the appearance of God in the flesh. They missed Jesus as the promised Messiah. So whether far off or near, both Gentiles and Jews are not at peace with God. And here's what we see in this passage. However wide the gap is, between those who are far and those who are near, the gap between being near to God and peace with God is infinitely further than that. So the only way that peace is going to come to either Jew or Gentile is through the reconciliation secured by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is really the the great leveler of the gospel message. There are, there are a thousand specific ways to be separated and alienated from God. And generally speaking, Gentiles were those who were separated from God by their outright paganism. You know, they worship other gods. They, their morality was all over the place. Jews were those that were separated by their presumption on their position with God. They might be chosen as God's people, but we often see examples of how they don't really love God. God. They don't really honor God. They just want to enjoy the benefits of being those people. But regardless of what brings the alienation, regardless of the type of alienation, there's only one way of reconciliation to God. And it's as Paul says in verse 16, we are both reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Now this peace uh, and this reconciliation requires Both destruction and construction. Something has to be destroyed, something has to be built. So what has to be destroyed? What has to be torn down? Well, Paul says it's the law. The cross of Jesus secures peace by abolishing the law, these Old Testament laws given by God through Moses. But there's some really important nuanced thinking we have to do when we read that, because when we listen to Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, he actually says the exact opposite. He says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also takes a portion of that law, the Ten Commandments, and he doubles down on it. And he actually raises the bar for what it means to live faithfully according to these commands that God's given. So Jesus still upholds the law as this moral guide that we're meant to obey and follow. So what what does Paul mean when he says that the law has been abolished? It means a couple things. For one, it means that all of the ceremonial laws about sacrifices, about cleanliness, about all of these, those things, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews talks a lot about this, that all of those ceremonial laws, all of the sacrifices that were done in the Old Testament, they're all shadows that were meant to point to the substance of Jesus himself. And Jesus in his sacrifice does that, it says in Hebrews, once and for all. The main thing, though, that this means when Paul says that the law is abolished is that the law has been abolished as the basis for salvation. You can't earn God's favor, you can't earn his salvation by keeping his law. It's impossible to perfectly and faithfully live up to that standard. And that's the whole reason that Jesus entered into our mess in the first place. That we couldn't do it, but he can and did. And in his life, Jesus perfectly lives up to that standard of God's law. And in his death, he pays the penalty for our inability to live up for it on our own. And what happens on the cross is this great exchange takes place where Jesus takes our unfaithfulness, our imperfect unfaithfulness on himself, and gives us the merits of his perfect faithfulness for us. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness, is the way that Paul says it in another letter. So this, again, is is the great leveler of the gospel. Whether you're terrible at keeping God's law, you're, you're far off, or whether you're pretty good at rule following and you're near, neither of those things is going to be your basis for peace with God. Jesus is our only possible basis for peace. Like Paul says, he himself is our peace. And this is a really important clarification for us to to grasp today, not just 2,000 years ago in the first century. Because somehow a lot of people in our culture, and this is true, I think, both inside and outside the church, we start to get this idea that the the big picture of what Christianity is all about is being a good person, living like Jesus lived. And it's just not that at all. That's just not the big picture core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's moralism. That's moralism. And it's actually the exact opposite of what Paul is explaining in Ephesians 2. That approach, trying to be good enough, trying to be like Jesus enough, and looking to that as the basis for peace with God, that's the thing that's been abolished by the work of Jesus. So for us, whether whether you are more the blatantly rebellious type, You know, you reject God outright. You want nothing to do with him. You want want to just live for yourself. Or whether you're more like the rule-following person. You try to somehow put God into your debt by doing enough good things, by being a good enough person to earn his favor. Neither of those things, for us, bring peace with God. There are these thousand different ways to be alienated and separated. There's one way of reconciliation, and that's through Jesus, who's our peace. And if there's this, just this one way back to God, then really any basis for division between one another as people is completely wiped out at the same time. And that brings us to this horizontal axis of peace, peace with one another. The Jews and Gentiles, um, they weren't just alienated and separated from one another. That'd be like the light way of talking about that. It was really an intense hostility between them. A scholar named William Barclay sums it up like this. It says, the Jew had immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was an absolute so here's what happened over the centuries. The Jews, the Israelites, took their position of privilege as God's people and they warped and they distorted that into superiority rather than service. So God, when he, when he chooses Abraham, when he chooses his family, he does it with the explicit purpose that through that family, all of the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. But the Israelites had become content to let that blessing terminate on them rather than being conduits of that to all the other nations of the earth. Not only that, they then had erected these huge dividing walls of hostility between themselves and the Gentiles. So these terms that Paul mentions here, these labels, the uncircumcision and the circumcision, those were labels that the Jewish people used in a really derogatory way. Think of like racial slurs that might get used in our culture today. It's Something like that. So to to import, you know, our vocabulary to this, these weren't microaggressions. These were macroaggressions. This was like outright racism and superiority complex coming, coming here. So Jesus has substantial work to do to bring peace. And we've seen the destruction that was required. Jesus abolishing the law as our basis for peace with God, leveling the playing field. But there's also construction. Something needs to be built up. And what it is is that out of these two divided peoples, out of the two men, as Paul puts it, Jesus makes one new man. So through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus actually creates a new humanity. He creates and is creating a new humanity. And here's what we need to see in this. The hostility here is so deep that the remedy has to be Radical. It's quite literally a recreation that's required. And we're recreated as God's people individually. We read that together in the words of encouragement this morning. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone individually is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. But this, what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 2, is the recreation of an entire people. Out of the many divided peoples, Jesus creates one new people. And this is why avoidance will never bring peace. It's why ever-expanding lists of things that qualify as microaggressions or trigger warnings is a really short-sighted approach. It's good-intentioned. But but well-intentioned as it may be, it doesn't go nearly deep enough. It doesn't go deep enough. We don't need growing lists of things ...that we can and can't talk about. We don't need permission to use being offended as a trump card. That just erects more walls of hostility around us. What we need is to be part of a new humanity. What we need is to be made fellow citizens with the saints... ...to be made fellow members of the household of God. What we need is to be caught up in this great work of God... ...a work that culminates around God's throne... ...where his people, his new humanity... People from every tongue and tribe and nation on earth are gathered around his throne worshiping him for eternity. That's what we need. That's the only remedy that's powerful enough for these dividing walls of hostility. And the image of construction that Paul uses here is that of a new temple. Jesus, the cornerstone, the one that sets the foundation, sets the lines. The apostles and prophets as the foundation And then every member of this new humanity being built up together as a dwelling place for God. And this is such such an appropriate picture here. Because the, the, the physical temple in Jerusalem had become a picture of these dividing walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. There were these different courts where the Jews would worship God around the temple. And then there was a one and a half meter thick stone wall that divided those courts from the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could worship. So literally, there was a dividing wall of hostility. But if Jesus brings peace to those who are far off and to those who are near, if he's then given his spirit to all of those people that he has reconciled, then there's no more barrier. Then there's no more barrier. The presence of God is no longer in this structure with these dividing walls between different groups of people, the presence of God is now within the hearts of this one new humanity that's been created by Jesus. And friends, this, when Paul talks about this, this is the church. This is the church. This is the the people of God as the church. People with a shared identity as citizens of the household of God, members of God's people. A people with shared access to the Father through one spirit a people with shared peace through Jesus. And this has huge implications for our lives. Because Jesus has secured our peace, both our peace with God and our peace with one another, Christians are called to be people of peace. We're called to be people of peace. And peace is is so much more than, than avoiding conflict. Okay, peace... When it's spoken about in Scripture, it's this comprehensive picture of what it looks like to experience the presence of God, to experience the salvation of God. It's really what the Hebrew word shalom conveys. And it's for us this fundamental posture of longing for the good and the well-being and the reconciliation of all people in light of the finished work of Jesus. So we're meant to be a people of peace and really in a couple different ways. One, we're meant to be people of peace within the church, among ourselves as the people of God. And everybody loves this idea in theory, right? Like no one, no one raises their hand to go, I think we should not get along in the church and be at odds with one another all the time. No one says that. We all love it in theory, but in practice, we care more about being right. And in practice, we care more about my preferences, which becomes the enemy of peace when being right or my preferences begins to trump this shared identity that we have as Jesus' new humanity. Now, as a church, both specifically our church, Liberty Church, but also, in general, the capital C church, the people of God in this generation, we, I, I believe, really need a renewed vision of what the church actually is. Okay, if the church is what Paul's describing here, if it's this new humanity who have fundamentally have been given peace with God and peace with one another, then the church becomes our opportunity to experience that and to embody that in our relationships with each other. And when we lose sight of that, it's when we start to do silly things. It's when we start to join churches or leave churches for very superficial reasons. So my encouragement to all of us is let's be part of a church community where we make peace with one another In light of the peace that's been secured by Jesus. And there's a really important difference here between keeping peace and making peace. Keeping peace is just a fancy way of saying avoidance. Keeping peace is avoidance. And if you're like me, then when there's simultaneous conflict on multiple fronts all at the same time, or if one or more of those just feel crushing, it's tempting to just want to try to keep the peace rather than actually making it. But would you learn would you learn this with me from Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2 should definitively convince all of us that keeping peace can't accomplish anything of real value. Can't accomplish anything of real value. Avoidance does not bring peace. And Jesus was not a peacekeeper. He was a peacemaker which meant ripping down these dividing walls of hostility, which meant enduring the suffering and the shame of the cross. It's the opposite of avoidance. And it's actually that kind of immersion into the sinfulness of humanity and that kind of immersion into conflict that's required to actually make peace with one another. So let's be people of peace, making peace with one another because Jesus is our peace. Not only people of peace, though, within the church, we're also meant to be people of peace in the world. And what Paul highlights here in this passage, it's going to call us as Christians to both evangelism and social action. It's going to call us to both of those things. And we tend to treat that as an either-or decision. But there's never meant to be a choice between showing the gospel and between telling the gospel. So there is no peace apart from Jesus. So we proclaim him with our words, with our mouths, we proclaim him as the only source of peace. Because that's what's required. You 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 can coexist with one another. You can coexist with people without Jesus. There is no peace without Jesus. And for the sake of keeping a quote-unquote peace, which really is no peace at all, May we never pull up short of the actual remedy to hostility between people when we're given it right here. May we never pull up short of the actual remedy to that. And at the very same time, we pursue showing the gospel by striving for peace in our world, in our human relationships, across these walls and lines that typically divide. One of the closest present-day parallels to what Paul describes here in Ephesians 2 are the dividing walls of hostility between races and ethnicities in our culture. And, you know, have, have the last couple years and all of the stories that we read and see, have they not convinced us that the, that the walls of hostility are really high and really thick between white people and black people in our country, between other racial and ethnic groups in our country? As people of peace, we must pursue racial reconciliation because as those who have been given this peace, who have been brought near to God through the work of Jesus, we have the only sufficient and the only genuine foundation for it. And that compels us to pursue it. Now, when I I look at those dividing walls of hostility between races in our day and age, I get overwhelmed really quickly. And I feel really unequipped to do anything about that. And and maybe that's where you are this morning. But what I want us to see is that as overwhelming as it might be, as unequipped as you might feel, we're called by the peace secured by Jesus for us into pursuing that. We're called into that. And I'm grateful that we are part of, as a church, a, a network of churches and a family of churches that are both making strong strides ...to pursue this. That's true for the Acts 29 network right now. That's also true for the Liberty Network. In a couple weeks, uh, on October 18th... uh, ...the Liberty Network is part of something called Reconcile 2015. Um, If anyone wants to spend their Sunday evening in Philly... ...is able to go, um, just let me know. Email me. I'd be happy to get you the details for this. Uh, But it's a multi-ethnic worship gathering... ...that's happening across all kinds of denominational... and, ...and other types of lines in the city of Philadelphia... And it's aimed at fostering racial reconciliation in the church specifically. But what I love about this is that that the reconciliation that these radically diverse people and and groups are aiming for as they do this is a very gospel-centered reconciliation. The, The theme that they're pursuing comes from exactly this text that we're in today, Ephesians 2. And it's because only Jesus is our peace. So let's bring this all together. As Paul says here, remember, remember, remember that Jesus himself is our peace. Whether you were far off, whether you were near, Jesus is our peace. And he has purchased our peace with God. He has purchased our peace with one another. He has torn down the most extreme dividing walls of hostility. And he's creating one new humanity out of the many. And these vertical and these horizontal axes are inseparable. They're inseparable. So may we look to Jesus as our peace. And may we be people of Jesus' peace within the church and people of Jesus' peace in our world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we see our need for you we could not, by our rebellion and rejection of you or by trying to earn your favor, we could not accomplish peace with God. But you have done that for us. You are our peace. May we look to you as our peace, Jesus, and may we see how this bleeds into all of these different facets of our lives. May we be people of peace in our relationships in the church, in this church, and across the different church and denominational lines that exist here in our region. May we be people of peace in the world. May we be sent by you in both word and deed, both showing and telling the gospel, both evangelism and social action. Would we proclaim you as the only source of peace and would we actually try to embody it with our lives? Would you send us to do that by your spirit? Would you sustain us as we do that by your spirit? You are our peace, Jesus. And as we come to the table today, may we be filled with a sense of your peace because it's through the cross, it's through your body and blood that you have purchased it for us. You have reconciled us to God. You have reconciled us to one another. And we're grateful for you, Jesus. We're grateful for that work you've done. We pray this in your name.